Amen. Well, like we've said, we are in a sermon series called One. We are studying together through the book of Acts. Uh, If you didn't grab the study guide last week, uh, I'd encourage you to grab that from last week. We're going to post them every week on our website. Uh, This week's, it's not live yet, it'll be there. Oh, this week's is live now on the website. Uh, So we hope that what we do here on Sunday mornings can continue in conversation and prayer throughout your weeks. Uh, The sermon series is called One because the book of Acts tells us about one God who has one mission, sorry, who has one church, and that church has one mission, which becomes the one focus of our lives, Jesus followers living here today. We're in kind of the first movement of this series, and we're queuing in on that first work of our one God. And so what we're referring to this next few weeks is one church. In the book of Acts, God's people were learning new forms of worship and community and generosity. And we also are in a world where we have to learn new forms of worship and community and generosity and service. And so our hope is to read the stories from the book of Acts and let them inform us about what it means to be God's people living faithfully in our world today. And indeed, this is the first movement, one church, and we're going to be talking more today about what exactly does it mean to be the church. As I was getting ready for the sermon, there was this phrase that kept coming to mind. I bet it's a phrase that you have either said yourself, or you've heard somebody say, or likely both at some point in your life. The phrase goes, you'll know it when you see it. Everybody, all the time. I mean, literally, it's like you're going to a friend's house and they're having a hard time describing how to get there, but they eventually say, it's vibrant yellow, you'll know it when you see it. Or maybe you're going to a trailhead up in the mountains and a friend of yours is describing how to get there and they can't really remember what it looks like, but they say, once you get there, you'll know it when you see it. It's an almost ubiquitous phrase, and it's meant to be used when we can't quite find the words to describe or explain or put our finger on something, but we know that once it's experienced, once it's encountered, once you're face-to-face, we know that people will be able to see what it is. And I think that's how a lot of people in the world around us feel about the church. I think there's a lot of people who look and they go, you know what, I see this church doing this, and I see that church doing that, and and I get conflicting messages. I think our world is filled with people who have a hard time really putting our finger on what is the church. And so our job is to live our lives in such a way that a watching world, even if they can't define it or explain it or understanding, a watching world will readily say, I don't know what the church is, but I know it when I see it. And we're going to learn a little bit about how the first Jesus followers centered their lives around some core practices that became the definition that a watching world experienced and called church. So, um, brief review. Last week, 
We read the very beginning of the book of Acts. And Jesus said to his disciples, he said, here's what I need you to do. I need you to wait for me. And his disciples said, Jesus, we've been waiting long enough for your kingdom to come. What do you mean wait? And Jesus said, I know, I know, I know. You're tempted by political power. You're tempted by religious power. You're tempted by violence. You're tempted by financial power. I need you to wait until the power of God, the Holy Spirit, God's presence on earth. I need you to wait until that power comes because the church has only one power. And that is the power of God present on earth in his Holy Spirit. Well, the story continued, and sure enough, the Holy Spirit showed up in a powerful way, and the church, God's one church, was launched with a demonstration of how God's power is greater than any earthly power, and with a confirmation that when we can put aside earthly powers and wait for God's power, then God works through us instead of us trying to muster up the strength to do God's work for him. Well, the people watching were amazed when they saw the Holy Spirit at work, and particularly a group of early Jewish people were talking to Peter. You may remember Peter, one of the 12 apostles. He was close with Jesus during Jesus' whole life uh, and ministry on earth. Peter has now become one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Peter is going to be at the center of the whole beginning of the book of Acts. And just as a brief reminder, the book of Acts was written by a man named Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. And Luke and Acts are actually two volumes in one combined work. So we hear from Luke about Peter in Jerusalem and a group of Jewish people saying, well, what should we do if it's so clear that God's power is present on earth. And Peter gives them a sermon. He gives them a really great sermon. And at the end of the sermon, it says the Jews gathered there are cut to their hearts, and they ask Peter, what should we do? It's an amazing question. It's a question that I think still happens in our world today. People encounter the truth of the good news that God has given through Christ. And when they encounter the truth of it, not a broken form of it, not somebody's misunderstanding of it, not somebody's misrepresentation, but when people encounter the truth that God's love came to earth to be with us, people will often say, what should we do? And the passage we're going to read today picks up right where the Jewish audience finished listening to Peter's sermon and said to Peter, what should we do. So if you want to turn to the book of Acts, we're in chapter 2, starting in verse 36 through the end of the chapter. The words are going to be on the screen if you want to grab a Bible. Uh, if you want to open your Bible app on your phone, open the app, click the menu button, and click events. You'll see Centennial Covenant Church listed right there. So this is Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 30. Six. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter 
and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, Peter warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So last week we talked about how there's only one power that the church relies on, and that is the power of the Holy Spirit. And what we get today is a glimpse of if life is being lived in the power of the Holy Spirit, what does that look like? What should we expect to see in the life of the person dependent on God's power and none other? Well, the answer kind of comes in two forms. The first form is access to that power, and the second form is the results of that power. So the first thing we notice is the Jewish people say to Peter, what shall we do? And Peter responds by saying, you should do two things. You should repent and be baptized, and then you'll receive the power of the Holy Spirit. So if the church, sorry, if the Holy Spirit is the power of the church— then repentance and baptism are the steps required to access that power. Here's what the church believes. And, you know, if you're new to church, if you're not familiar with church language, this can sound kind of strange, but let me just try to make it real simple for you. When I look around at the world, when I live my life, when I experience and think through things, here's what I observe. I observe that for all of the science for all of the technology, for all of the psychology that is incredibly helpful in our world, I don't think all of that human knowledge adequately explains fully what's going on in our world. When I look around at my world, I say, I think there's something bigger going on around me. The church has affirmed that something bigger is God's presence on earth. We call it the Holy Spirit because it's a real presence, but it's not necessarily a physical presence. It's God's spiritual presence here at work on earth. But we also know this. Whatever that power of God is, if you're like me, we know we can purposefully distance and distract and separate ourselves from that power. God's power is basically 
motivating all of the good and right and just and beautiful things in our world. And we know that as humans, we can either embrace and, and strengthen the good, beautiful work of God, or humans can resist and reject and work against the good and the beautiful work of God on earth. And the invitation is this. If you want to be part of the good work God is doing, his invitation to you is twofold. First, would you repent? Repentance is one of the most countercultural things around us. You watch the news and you watch any significant figure who's come under scrutiny, and it is hard to find someone who will say, you're right, I'm wrong, I messed it up, and I'm going to turn from my wrong ways and go a new way. That's what repentance is. It's saying, I was going in a bad way, and I'm going to turn and go a different way. It's saying, I was going my own way, and my own way was going nowhere. So I'm going to turn and go God's way. We see examples of people uh, making excuses, of people defending their bad decisions, of people uh, uh, putting the blame on someone else. But God's invitation is this. Would you acknowledge that the brokenness in our world is a brokenness inside of us as well? And all we need to do is confess it's true and say, I want to turn a different way because God has said that I can. And then that inward work between us and God is made outward when we are baptized. And so, as we've said many times, if you're here, if you're new, if you're new to church, if you haven't re- experienced repentance and baptism, today's the day. Reach out to a pastor, reach out to whomever invited you to this church. If you just found us online, find the email on our website, send us an email. We want to talk to you about repentance and baptism. Because if the Holy Spirit is the power of the church, then repentance and baptism are the steps required to connect ourselves with that power. So Luke goes on and he says, all right, all right, all right. Repentance and baptism are the first steps, but then if you're living your life connected to the Holy Spirit, this church in Jerusalem around 30 AD, they're living their lives connected to the Holy Spirit. What's it going to look like? In a world filled with confusing messages about the church, let's make sure that internally we're clear on who we are So that when they see it, they will know it when they see it. And we get here four of the key characteristics of the church. These four things that are going to be named right now become foundational aspects. Churches across the world, in different languages, in different cultures, in different continents, young people in the church, old people in the church, new people in the church, lifelong members of the church— These are four characteristics that were present at the beginning and have not changed for us today. And those four characteristics are the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. If the Holy Spirit's the power of the church, repentance and baptism connect us to the power of the church— then these are the inevitable practices of people living life with the Holy Spirit. So here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to talk about each of these four. I'm going to define it a little bit. I'm going to ask some questions to 
prompt our own reflection of how they show up in our lives. And I'm going to try to give you a little bit of an illustration to help this message sink in, because here's my desire. As the world around us is changing, as we're changing our forms of worship, we're doing outdoor worship at 9 a.m. I hope you come next week, register online today if you want. You know, we continue to do live stream worship, something the early church literally would not have ever dreamed of. What? You can take a video and magically beam it to houses across the world? That's impossible. As the form of our worship is changing, I want us to be so connected to God's vision of his church that no matter what the form looks like, we're still living our lives with the core characteristics and practices of what it means to be God's people. So here we go. The four characteristics, the four practices of the church. The first one, the apostles' teaching. Now, before you jump in and interrupt me, let me just acknowledge. Um, We here at Centennial, we don't have any apostles that come and do any teaching. We, We have pastors. We have ministry team leaders. We have people who are prayers and people who go out and serve. We never talk about apostles. So what in the world is the apostles' teaching? And how can I devote myself to it if we don't have any apostles? I'm glad you asked. I would like to answer that question. Here's how it worked. Now, Jesus, we've met him in the Gospels. The whole reason that this whole worldwide movement called the church is Jesus. He spent three years teaching, serving, uh, doing incredible things for people who were poor and oppressed and downtrodden. And then he revealed himself at the end of life. He said, I'm not just a teacher. I'm actually God on earth. And that claim was so incredible, it got him killed. You're not allowed to say, I'm God. I mean, if somebody showed up right now and said, hey, I know I look like a human, but I'm God. What do you think we would do? I won't lie. I think there's a decent chance that person today might get killed, just like Jesus got killed for claiming he was God. That claim is unbelievable, except for the fact that after Jesus died, three days later, he came back to life. If Jesus had claimed he was God and just died, history would have completely forgotten about him. But hundreds of people saw him die, and then saw him alive three days later. And so the the man who claimed to be God proved he was God. And it is Jesus' teaching, and Jesus' teaching alone, that we are committed to. But after Jesus rose from the dead, he then left the earth. And so if we're committed to Jesus' teaching, well, what do we do? Well, we turn to the people who knew him best when he was on earth. And sure enough, like any good Jewish rabbi, Jesus had gathered a group of 12 men, and he had taught his message to the 12 apostles. We sometimes call them the 12 disciples. But the apostles' teaching is referring to the teaching of the 12 men, they all happen to be men, who spent three years learning everything Jesus taught, And what the apostles were teaching was not their own ideas, was not their own message, was not their own words. The apostles were teaching what Jesus had taught them. And so they were giving the teaching of Jesus to the early church. 
So when it says the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, what it meant was they were devoting themselves to the teaching of Jesus as it was being passed on by the people who had spent years receiving teaching directly from Jesus. Now, unfortunately, the apostles have all died. I mean, if Peter was still alive, Peter would be here preaching the sermon right now, and it would be way better. It'd be amazing. But we don't have Peter. We don't have any of the apostles. But what we do have is the teachings that they wrote down. They took teachings from Jesus. They spoke those teachings to the early church, and then they wrote them down. Eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus wrote down the teaching of Jesus, and they passed it on to the church, who passed it on to the church, who passed it on to the church, who passed it on to you and to me. And so if we're going to be devoted to the apostles' teaching like the early church, if we're going to be devoted to Jesus' teaching, we're going to be devoted to the teaching of the Bible. The teachings of the New Testament that record the life and teachings of Jesus and the Old Testament, which Jesus himself considered an authority. So what does it mean to be devoted to the apostles' teaching? It means to be devoted to studying and learning. For me, preaching and teaching God's word to God's people. When I think about it, uh, the, the idea, the kind of the image that came to mind was uh, uh, being hungry, right? We sang, like I said before, we're all searching for answers, but we're searching for answers that only God provides. And when I'm searching for something, I think hunger is an apt metaphor, right? When I really have a, a question that I just have a burning desire to get an answer for, it's like I'm hungry for an answer. It reminded me about when I was uh, in high school, I took a trip down to Mexico City. I had some friends in Mexico City, and while I was there, we went on an overnight uh, climbing trip up in the mountains outside Mexico City. Now, just imagine for a second a group of high school boys planning a two-day climbing trip. I don't think it would be hard for you to surmise that uh, logistics were not our strong suit. So, We get to the cabin where we're staying, we go out, we have our first full day of climbing, it was beautiful, it was a great day, and at the end of the day, we come back to our cabin, and we are all very hungry. Now think for a second, remember a time that you've been hungry, right? Hunger is a common sensation. For many of us, it's a sensation that when we feel hungry, we're able to immediately satisfy that desire. But we recognize that for many people in the world, hunger is a nearly constant experience. But either way, when you're hungry, when you're really hungry, deep in the bones, hungry, that hunger drives all of your decisions. It changes the way you think about and interact with the world around you. Hunger drives you. Now, we got back to the cabin, and we were all hungry. And fortunately, we had prepared a wonderful meal. We had brought an excellent array of foods. We had two rotisserie chickens and we had a two-liter bottle of Coca-Cola. I mean, this is just like, I mean, this is a a well-balanced meal. But then we realized what we hadn't brought was plates or cups 
or silverware of any sort or napkins or really anything else that you would assume is necessary for eating. All we had in the whole cabin was two rotisserie chickens and a two-liter bottle of Diet Coke. But we were hungry. And because we were so hungry, it became very obvious what to do. We simply started to rip the flesh from the bones of the chicken and shove it into our faces, wiping our hands on our already stinky t-shirts as a napkin. Because when you're hungry, you dig into the food that's in front of you. So let me ask you a question. In your spiritual life, are you hungry? And I know that you are because we live in a world that makes us hungry for some sign of clarity or answer or direction by which to live. And if you are indeed hungry, then I'd invite you to dig in to God's word to satisfy that hunger in your life. And when you do that, when you are hungry for God's word, you are practicing what it means to be the church. All right, second one, fellowship. When we think of fellowship, when I think of fellowship, I think of the fellowship hall in Zion Lutheran Church up in northern Minnesota. When I think of the fellowship hall, I think of potlucks and casseroles and hot dishes. I think of green jello salad, which means they put a cup of canned fruit into the salad. When I think of fellowship, I think of lutefisk and lefsa, these traditional Scandinavian foods that for some reason were just part of what it meant to be a church in northern Minnesota. Maybe you had some experiences like that as well. But in Jerusalem in the year 30 AD, when they said fellowship, they thought of something a lot different. Let me remind you, first of all, the Jesus followers in Jerusalem fell into two socioeconomic categories. There were the poor people, and there were the even poorer people. The vast majority of the, per- of the church lived just at or way below the level of poverty. I mean, subsistence would have been a good place to be for many of these people. And in a world like ancient Rome, where the majority of people did not have the means to care for themselves, the community you were part of, literally, you depended on them for your livelihood. Most people in these incredibly poor circumstances, if they had any form of employment, even subsistence employment, it would be connected to a large household, and the head of that household, or the benefactor over that whole enterprise, would care for the feeding and the shelter of dozens, sometimes even hundreds of people. Well, for many early Jesus followers, when they decided to follow Christ with their lives, they would find themselves kicked out of the systems and the economics that they used to depend on. And so what you had in the early church was a mass of people. A few of them had some money. A very few of them had a lot of money. And the vast majority of them were utterly dependent on their community to find even a bite to eat every day. And so when scripture says fellowship, what they talk about is a people who 
literally needed one another to stay alive. This fellowship was arguably closer and more intimate even than family connections. It went so far beyond potlucks and jello salads that we are always at risk of missing how interconnected the church was. And so the question we have to ask ourselves when we talk about fellowship is not, do I show up at an event or do I bring uh, this or that to church functions? But the question is, are we connected? I was on a video phone call with my mom in Minneapolis and my brother in Boston. It was my mom's birthday, so we were having a sibling phone call. We tried to get my sister in New Zealand on the call, but none of us understand time zones enough to make that work. So I'm on the phone, and I'm in my backyard. And the phone call is happening on my home wireless network. But in the backyard, the signal wasn't very strong. And so I got this message flashing up on the screen at me. It kept saying, low connectivity. You ever had that experience? I mean, we live in a world where our ability to connect to an internet signal often dictates if we can get our job done, if we can communicate with our family about logistics, if we can get together with friends, we often live our lives dependent on the strength of an internet signal. And when there's low connectivity, we need to somehow get that signal boosted so that we can communicate and connect with our friends, so that we can talk with our family, so that we can get our work done. I think that's a decent image for our modern lives. We know how frustrating it is to have a weak signal and how disconnected we are when we drop calls all the time. And so, as people trying to live in fellowship, asking ourselves, are we connected? Then we can say to ourselves, where are we going to boost the signal? Where are we going to go beyond just church events or gatherings and say, I want my life to be truly connected, maybe interconnected? Because I know that in my life and, and in your life, we could live our lives where our relationships are completely independent from the church, where our financial well-being is completely independent from the church, where all of our social circles are completely separate from the church. Our modern suburban lifestyle is set up to make it possible to live 100% disconnected from one another. But if fellowship is a defining characteristic of the church, then how are we going to boost the signal so that we're even more connected to this community of faith? Third component, breaking bread. Now, I'm guessing that when you hear hear the term breaking bread in a church context, if you've been around a church at all, the first thing that's going to come to your mind is communion. We often, in our worship services here, somebody picks up a piece of bread. And we say, just like Christ's body was broken for us, we break this bread to remember Christ's broken body. Well, indeed, Evidence suggests that's exactly what they did in Jerusalem in 30 AD as well. 
they would gather around tables and they would break bread and they'd say, just as Christ's body was broken for us, we break this bread as a reminder. However, they also did it with an incredibly different twist, something that is uncommon to a lot of churches today. We're going to see it uh, later on in the book of Acts. Uh, We found evidence of it in all sorts of other historical documents. This is the way the church celebrated communion in those early days. First of all, they may well have done it every single day of the week. Second of all, the church for a long time had an all-community meal that they celebrated once a day every single day day. And that meal was open to everybody in the community. But think about this. If the church community, with thousands of people being added to their number every day, so this is a big event, or it's multiple events spread out about the the city, if thousands of people are being added to their number, and if the majority of people don't have the means to sustain themselves, what is most likely the case is that when the church sat down and they broke the bread of communion and they shared a meal together, that meal was probably the only meal the poorest members of the community would eat that day. That meal may well have been the only opportunity every single day for the poorest members to get any food. And so literally, the act of breaking the bread of communion to remember God's gift of spiritually feeding us with forgiveness, literally in the same moment, the church was physically feeding the poorest among their members. If you follow church history at all, you may be familiar with a practice that many churches uh, used to follow, some still today. It's called almsgiving. See, almsgiving is this. If, if I give a certain amount of money regularly to the church to support the ministries of the church, to support the general uh, functions of the church, almsgiving was a separate giving, usually done every single day at the daily worship gathering, that all went to feeding those in the community that could not physically feed themselves. Almsgiving was a reminder that when we, as the gathering of Jesus followers, break the bread of communion, in the same moment we should be asking, and how can we feed the hungry in our midst? The way we try to do that here at Centennial is through what we call our Benevolence Fund, which many of you so generously and faithfully support, because we want to be a place where anybody who's in our community that is hungry or in need of some financial assistance, just like the early church, We're going to make sure that our people are fed. As God has given to us, we give to others. The the heart of this is what the church has always called generosity. So the question to ask ourselves would be, are we generous? Are we generous? The image that came to my mind was uh, my son Asa. I've been giving him a bath often uh, at night, or rather, I've been the one to give him a bath often at night. And the boy loves bath time. I mean, he just loves it. And if you've ever met a two-year-old, you know that pretty much all two-year-olds love 
bath time. Well, Asa, I think he loves bath time so much that recently, as I've been sitting next to him in the bath, I've seen his wheels turning. And he sits in the bath and he goes, well, I really like bath time. And I really like splashing the water around. And clearly, Asa is a wonderfully generous little boy. And he doesn't want to keep the joy of bath time to himself. So he's been taking his little cup and he's been splashing water on me in order to share the goodness of bath time with his dad. So as a church who wants the watching world to look in and say, yeah, 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 I know it when I see it. As a church trying to be generous, we might ask ourselves, are we, uh, are we splashing around? Are we taking what God has given it, given us and not hoarding it to ourselves, but literally splashing it out so that others might be blessed as well? Last characteristic, prayer. And prayer is indeed the foundational one that powers all of the rest. I really think that prayer is the means by which we stay daily connected to the power of God's Holy Spirit. If it's true that so many other powers in this world are distracting us and pulling us away from a dependence on God, then prayer is the mean that we stay connected. It makes me think about an experience that probably all of you have had at some point, maybe with your television or maybe with your brand new fancy toaster oven or maybe with any number of electronic devices that you've had in life, right? The electronic device isn't working. And so you do the troubleshooting steps. Is the power switch on? Did I flip the setting? Did I uh, attach the component? And you do all the troubleshooting steps until finally you realize, a little bit embarrassed, that you forgot to plug it in. Because the thing about electronics is this. I don't care what troubleshooting steps you've taken. If it's not plugged in, it will never ever work. And so it is with the church. Just like electronics are dependent on being plugged into the wall in order to work, Jesus followers should be dependent on God with daily prayer. So the question to ask ourselves, are you dependent Or you might think to myself, as I'm going through all the work I need to do in my life, as I'm living the way that God desires me to live, am I doing it in a way that is plugged in to the one and only power source that matters? Because let's be honest, if we're not plugged into God so that it's his power in our lives, then chances are we're not truly doing his work. Instead, we're trying to do our work. So, this is a world filled with confusion. What does it really mean to be the church? How do I know it? How do I reconcile what I see over there with what I see over there? And in the book of Acts, Luke tells us about four characteristics that when we live them should help the world around us know it 
when they see it. Even if they can't understand it or define it, they go, oh, but when I see that, I know that that is God at work in his people. And the four characteristics of the church are the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And if it was true for them that a watching world was in awe of them, daily adding to their numbers, that they won the respect of the broader community. If it's true for them, then we can ask ourselves as well. In our lives, are we hungry? Are we connected? Are we generous? Are we dependent? Or to maybe reiterate these images, are we digging in to God's word? Have we boosted the signal of our connection with others? Are we splashing around and sharing generously what God has given us? And are we doing that all as people plugged in to the only power source that matters, God's Holy Spirit in our lives? When the watching world looks at us, Centennial Covenant Church, and we pray when they look at God's church worldwide, Will they know it when they see it? I was struck um, the very first sentence in this part of Acts. Before we hear these four uh, practices, characteristics of the church, there's just this one little phrase. It says, they devoted themselves. I've really been thinking about that word devotion. I mean, when I hear the word devotion, I might think of a couple who is just just passionately in love with one another. We'd say they are devoted to each other. You might think about somebody whose life has been changed and now they're living just for some sort of a really good or beautiful cause. You might say they are devoted to giving access to education or to access to clean drinking water. Devotion is a powerful word, and when people see devotion, they might say, I don't know if I can exactly describe it, but I know it when I see it. When I think of devotion, I think again of my son Asa. He's been waking up at 2 a.m. recently. Um, He's a big boy. He's a very hungry boy. When he wakes up at 2 a.m., He has a very clear picture of what needs to happen. He needs me to come in and pick him up. And when I pick him up and hold him, he instantly throws himself out of my arms so that I literally have to make sure I don't drop him on the ground. And he runs down the hallway. He runs down the stairs. It's 2 a.m. I don't know why he's running. He runs into the kitchen. He reaches way up pulls the refrigerator open, climbs up onto the refrigerator, reaches on the top shelf over the refrigerator and gets a yogurt cup. Because at 2 a.m., Asa is devoted to one thing only, and that is eating a cup of Chobani strawberry yogurt. And if you try to put him back to bed before he eats that yogurt, you are not in for a good rest of the evening because this boy will make sure your sleep is done. But if you let him have the yogurt cup and he eats the yogurt cup, then instantly he puts it back down when he's done and he runs right back upstairs and he waits next to his crib and you pick him up 
and set him down, and he blissfully goes back to sleep. I don't know where you've experienced devotion in your life, but I bet you've seen it. And I bet you would agree that you know it when you see it. And so let's ask ourselves, are we devoted to studying God's word, to intimate connection with one another, to generously giving what God has given us, and to doing that all not on our own strength, but as people plugged in, dependent on the power of God, strengthening our lives. Here's my challenge to you. First, go on the website, get the study guide. It's in the same place on our website as last week's was. Don't let this teaching from God's word end right now, but find a place. Maybe do it by yourself. If you're in a life group, do it with your life group. If your life group's studying something else, grab a friend, grab your spouse, grab one of your kids. Make your engagement with God's word something that continues beyond Sunday morning. Use that study guide. Ask yourself, is my community and generosity something I am devoted to? But finally, if you're not sure where to start, if if you want to think about your devotion to God and what that looks like, here's where I'd really challenge you to start. Start with that fourth one. Start with prayer. And specifically, there's one more resource I want to tell you about. It's also on the church website. Um, there's There's a kind of prayer that I think our world is even more desperately in need of today. See, we live in a content saturated world. And I think sometimes as Jesus followers, we can have too much content saturated prayer. It's like we sit down to pray and we end up writing an essay and then we end up looking at God and saying, all right, are you going to give me some sort of an essay back, God? I think our prayer is running the risk of becoming uh, too much like the content-heavy world we live in. So there's an ancient form of prayer. You might have heard us talk about it before. It's called Lectio Divina. And it resists the high speed and the content-heavy world around us. And here's the invitation. Again, we put the prayer resource on the website. I'd encourage you to find just maybe 10 minutes sometime this week to stop, slow down, find a passage of Scripture, and just slowly read it two, three, four times. You can read through our prayer guide. You can do this on your own. And instead of trying to write an essay to God, try to get all of the distractions of your life out and simply let yourself be connected through prayer to the power God wants to give you in your life. I hope you'll consider devoting your lives in this way, just like the church has for thousands of years. And with that, would you pray with me right now? God, as we've done many times, we acknowledge that we're tempted by so many other powers in our world. We're distracted, we're lured in, 
Sometimes we even believe these other powers are greater than you. So we confess. Help us turn from desires that lead us away from you and help us set our hearts and minds on you alone so that we are dependent on your power to strengthen and guide us in our lives. And this we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.